0: I'm going to have you take your Bible and turn to Romans 13. We're just going to use that as a quick launching off point here. Excuse me, as you know, we've been working our way through this uh, 13th chapter for a while now, and we've been looking at uh, our relationship to government, and and, uh, specifically our, our heart attitude towards government, and really towards authority. Um, Romans 13 says, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those which are established, those which exist are established by God. Verse 6 says, uh, for because of this you pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, uh, devoting themselves to this very thing, render to all what is due them tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And we've seen that, <coughs> excuse me, that the discussion really flows from the top of chapter 12 where we're called really to view all of life and, uh, through the mercies of God in our own lives in Christ. Uh, Romans 12 verse 1 says, I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good acceptable and perfect. So because of God's mercies to us in our life, we have certain responsibilities. We have certain responsibilities to God. We have certain responsibilities to others. We have certain responsibilities to those outside the church and responsibility to government, responsibility to authority because God has established authority. All authority exists um, um, by God. He's established authority and it's been established by him for the purpose, as we've been talking, of restraining evil and promoting good and protecting man's God-given rights. And we saw in these first seven verses of this 13th chapter that basically we have two responsibilities. Every every uh, uh, believer has two responsibilities. There's two imperatives in those seven verses. Subject ourselves to authority and pay taxes. <clears throat> and we worked through our issues of, uh, of started running through the issue of taxes, and we saw the taxes are ordained by God. He did it to fund uh, the government for the care of people in, in times of need. And when we started talking about the issue of taxes, that led us to uh, start to talk a little bit about the issue of money. And as I said last week, and I was reading through my notes, it's like, it seems to me, I don't know, this last week's been about three weeks long. I don't know how your last week has been, but last week, yeah, last week we're actually talking about uh, uh, subjecting ourselves to authority and started talking about the issue of taxes and money. And, And I said, it has to, when we start talking about those issues, it really has to do with our heart attitude. Because money really is a great evaluator of the condition of our hearts and a great barometer of where we are spiritually, because everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Everything we have comes from him, even our money. So how we spend our money that God provides is a great determiner of where our hearts are. So how we spend our money really reveals the priorities of our our heart, the priorities of our life. And again, really understanding and realizing the fact that quote-unquote, our money really isn't our money. It belongs to God, and He just gives us to use in life in the world in which we live, the world that He created. Now, as I started to get into those subjects, I really kind of <clears throat> took us off the road. Right? I said, I think I said last week, a rabbit trail it might be more of a four-wheel drive path, but we're, we're off track here, but but that's okay. Because I think the issues that come under those headings of taxes and um, uh, submitting to authority, subjecting authority and taxes comes to the issue of money in general, and then specifically giving. And and as we've seen, biblically there's only two kinds of giving regarding money in the Bible. First is required giving, which would involve the issue of paying taxes, and then the issue of tithing, and we saw that from the Old Testament. And we looked a little bit quickly at the issue of taxes from the New Testament perspective. We saw that Jesus said regarding taxes, pay them, right? He paid his taxes and he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, the second issue that we started to look at was the issue of free will giving. And again, there's only two kinds of giving in the Bible. You have required giving, you have free will giving. And we spent a little bit of time looking at both of these issues. As to the issue of tithing in the Old Testament, <clears throat> we saw that there's really no New Testament mandate in the church for the church to tithe. The tithe is really a practice of the nation of Israel, and the church is not the nation of Israel. And the tithe was not just 20 or 10 percent, it was more close to somewhere between 23 to 25 percent of one's annual income, again, to fund a the theocracy. And again, there's really no New Testament equivalent to the tithe. There's no commandment ever in the New Testament for the church to tithe because the issue with money when it comes to the New Testament and just the issue with money in general really has to do with our hearts. <clears throat> what do we do with our money? And again, <clears throat> what we do with our money is a reflection of where our hearts are. It's uh, What we do with our money is a reflection of the love we have for the persons of God in Christ. And when it comes to the issue of free will giving, we looked last week at a number of uh, different examples of this concept. In uh, the Old Testament, we saw various people who Uh, At various times, godly men, out of their love uh, for God and thankfulness for his involvement in their life, made offerings to God, and they did it freely. They did it freely out of their own will, they did it without any kind of compulsion, any demand upon God. They just chose to, uh, by their free will, by their choice, to give uh, back to God. And and we spent a good deal of time looking at that kind of concept. And and, and we really spent a lot of time looking at Exodus chapter 25 when they began to build the tabernacle. Remember that? Uh, and, and the story starts in Exodus 25 it's finished in e- Exodus 35 where God tells uh, Moses to take a contribution an offering uh, for the Lord from the people it says from among whomever is of willing heart let him bring it, it as the Lord's contribution that's Exodus 35 5 and again let them bring gold and silver and bronze and purple and scarlet materials and so on etc. Cetera, et cetera, for, the, for the building and the, and the decorating of the tabernacle And we saw that the hearts of God's people were so moved uh, with thankfulness towards God because of His grace and mercy in their life, the people were bringing what? Remember? Bringing too much. They're they're bringing too much. So Moses had to tell the people, stop. Stop bringing your gold. Stop bringing your silver and your bronze. He had to tell them to stop bringing the best of their stuff for the construction of the temple or the uh, tabernacle because they had too much of it. They were giving too much. And that's really the essence of the concept of free will giving. It's the hearts of God's people that have been so moved by God's grace and mercy and compassion in their own lives, again, to such an extent they believe in the ministry that they're a part of, that God is calling them to be involved in, and again, in our context, that exalts both the persons of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So when God's people are moved by God's mercy and compassion, they're not going to have to be commanded to give anything. They'll want to give. They'll want to give out of the love of their own hearts. And they'll have to be told at some point to stop giving because they're bringing too much. So again, the concept of free will giving is that it is an expression of love and an appreciation towards God by the believer. So you give back to the Lord in his ministry what he lays on your heart to give, whatever you decide to give, what he lays on your heart, and you and he agree together. So, so biblically, the only required giving in the New Testament is pay your taxes. And again, tithing is an Old Testament uh, concept for the theocracy of Israel. We don't live in a theocracy, so the tithe is not for us. The tithe, I don't see any command it anywhere in the New Testament. Again, when you talk about giving to the Lord's work, you just give what you and the Lord decide to give. Now, if you're stuck on the 10% kind of idea, then what happens is we tend to give out of law, and we tend to give out of legalism, not out of love. But God, what He demands, again, that... that free will giving concept is he just wants people to give every man whose heart is moved shall raise a contribution. Now somebody came up to me last week, I don't remember who it was, and if I did I wouldn't tell you, but somebody came up to me last week and they said after the sermon that the concept of 10% is a lot easier to grab onto than uh, free will giving, that that concept, because if you got the 10% thing all you got to do is what? Check the box, right? But when it comes to understanding that money really is an issue of the heart, that God requires that we give out of the uh, out of our heart that's moved by Him, then it becomes more difficult. And I, I think that's true. Because then you're forced to ask the question, well, exactly how much should we give back? How much should we give back to the Lord's work? Again, the, the principle of free will giving applies, I think, to the work of the ministry uh, in, in the church today. Now, there are a number of principles, I think, that you could pull out of the Word of God that help us... Uh, think about this issue about regarding giving to the Lord. And let me just give you a couple of the principles, and then we're going to look at some examples that I think are helpful. Uh, And and then we'll just allow the Lord to speak to your own heart, and you and He can work out how you respond to what the Word of God says. Uh, The first principle that you find in the New Testament about giving is it should be planned. It should be planned. So turn to 1 Corinthians um, 16, Verse 1. Now, to be honest with you, you're probably going to come back here at some point, so if you can put a little mark here, you might want to do that. And this is really going to kind of launch us off into a really tremendous study, I think. Uh, 1 Corinthians sixteen one. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So again, here in the context, an offering is being made for the destitute, uh, an offering is being collected for the destitute uh, believers in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Paul had previously solicited funds uh, in some of, from some of the churches to help, and here uh, he is saying the, the first principle is don't let your uh, giving be haphazard. Don't let your let your giving be haphazard. Let it be planned. Uh, verse two, on the first day of the week. Another evidence of the early church met on the, <clears throat> the Lord's Day on Sunday. On the first day of the week, let each one of you, or le- let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collection be made when I come. So he's just saying, look, giving principally should be regular, and not just when we feel like uh, being generous, but it should be planned, purposeful, uh, especially if there's a need that we can meet. How much should we give? <clears throat> Again, he says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collection be made when I come. Now, there's no set amount, <clears throat> but the principle is that the, uh, giving should be systematic, and it should be done proportionately. I think that's an important word, proportionally. So what does that mean? What is proportional giving? Well, it's not a specific set amount, it's not a percentage, but proportional giving is based upon what you have. What you have and what your, what your personal needs are, and then the needs of other, again, especially I think <clears throat> in the context of the New Testament, the ministry of the local church, let each one of you <clears throat> put aside and save as he may prosper. So let me give you an example to help understand this uh, proportional giving idea. Let's just say you have one believer, okay? Believer number one, he makes twenty thousand dollars per year. So he decides he's going to give ten percent of that away, which is two thousand dollars, right? And another believer makes fifty thousand dollars a year, and he's going to give ten percent away, and that's five thousand dollars. Now the second believer has given away three thousand more a year than the first believer, but the second believer has not given proportionately more. The first believer has only. to live on, yet the second believer has $45,000 a year to live on, which is more than twice as much as the first believer. It kind of sounds like a math problem, huh? The second believer who makes $50,000 a year could give away 20%, which is $10,000, and still have $40,000 to live on, still twice as much as the first believer, Therefore the second believer, if he gave away 10,000, would be giving not only more but proportionately more as he has prospered, right? Does that make sense? It's proportional. And again, it really has nothing to do with percentage. What it has to do is with the concept of free will giving as the Lord has prospered. It's done, however, in a systematic purposed manner prayed about, right? So on, on a certain day, the first day of the week, right? It's it's done systematically. The second principle is found just a, one more book over in Second Corinthians chapter nine. So you want to <coughs> excuse me, turn there. Our our giving should be done out of a joyful heart. Second Corinthians nine six. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Verse 7, let each one do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, and always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. Now I say this, right? Uh, and now I say again, verse 6, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. So he's just using, Paul's just using a self-evident principle from agriculture, and he's applying it to the Christian life in in the area of of giving. Uh, The harvest you receive is directly proportional to the amount of seed sown. So if you sow sparingly, that means you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, then you're going to expect to reap a a, a big bountiful uh, uh, harvest. Now it's interesting that the word bountiful uh, comes from the word that actually means praise and blessing. So when a person gives a generous, gives with a generous heart by faith, he's really trusting in God, and he, he desires to produce the greatest amount of blessing with the money that God has given to him as God's steward. And he's going to sow bountifully. He's going to expect to receive from the Lord the blessings, again, that is promised by what he has invested in the Lord's work. So on the other hand, the, the person who invests, uh, uh, Greatly should expect a great return, but the person who invests little should expect a lesser return. Again, verse 7 let each one do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver, or God loves a cheerful giver. So, proportioned giving, planned giving, premeditated, predetermined, is from the heart. It's, exter- it's not ex- uh, from external legal demands, but it's from the heart. It's voluntary. And it's not done grudgingly or with grief or with sadness. It's not done with reluctance or regret. It's not done out of a sense of duty or external pressure or coercion. It, what God is looking at is hearts full of love. So it's done out of love. That's why, again, the tithe doesn't apply in the New Testament, the New Testament believer. So to say you must give 10%, and I told you there are some churches that actually do that, not only takes away the joy of giving, it actually makes it a duty, right? It makes giving a duty. And then to say you must give 10%, again, violates the uh, principle of proportional giving. What if I wanted to give more? You're giving 10%. I mean, it's a a trip down crazy land, right? So 10% for some people may be a tremendous proportion of their um, income, and that really could be a burden to them. Where 10% for some other person it uh, could be a, a minuscule amount, and they could really afford to give much more if, they heart, if their heart desired. So again, when people are commanded or pressured out of a sense of duty, when they're forced to give, then it's no longer free will given. And when it's giving out of a wrong heart motive, uh, it can't be done with joy. You know, that's what God wants. God wants His children to give generously back to his people, back to him, back to his work, and God wants his children to do it joyfully. Let each one of you, uh, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that uh, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So since God is God and he's the possessor of uh, uh, possessor of everything and everything includes quote unquote our money again, uh, that really belongs to him, God, the God of all grace, the God of infinite resources will make sure that his children who have purposed in their hearts to regularly give out of joy back to him uh, because they love him and they love being one of his children, he'll make sure you never go without uh, that your needs are met. Uh, because our needs are not met by our money, our needs are met by our God. Our needs are met by not by our money. Our needs are met by our God. Third principle in, in giving uh, is it should be sacrificial. Should be sacrificial. Turn to uh, uh, chapter eight, Second Corinthians eight, verse one. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia in a great deal of affliction, in their, uh, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that in accordance to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with such entreaty for favor of participation in the support of the saints." And this, not as we had <coughs> expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. This is really a tremendous um, passage of, of Scripture, <coughs> and it really contains all the elements of the concept of free will giving. It has the idea of proportional giving. It has, introduces the voluntary aspect of, uh, or includes the voluntary aspect of giving, and includes giving that is sacrificial. Now, this passage, Second Corinthians uh, chapter eight obviously become comes between the two passages that we've just read. It comes between 1 Corinthians 16 and then First uh, Corinthians uh, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So all of these verses really kind of go together in, in the context, again, beginning back with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, before I get into all the details and particulars of 2 Corinthians 8, let me just give you a little bit of background of the text of Scripture uh, so you can see how it flows out of this First Corinthians chapter sixteen uh, passage, because I think it's very vital and helpful to understand the the background. So this passage here, 2 Corinthians eight, really sets out the model for New Testament Christian giving, and, and again, it contains the heart of the uh, of uh, uh, the theology of Christian giving. It's the heart of, uh, of again this idea of free will giving. So let me let me set the background. Before we get into the, the specifics of the text, uh, on a whole, if you look at the New Testament in the idea of giving, you see that the reasons that people gave in the early New Testament church were two for two major reasons. First they gave to support the leaders, right? To support the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, etc. and so forth who were responsible for leading and serving the congregations. And secondly, they gave for the general welfare and support of the needy uh, in the early church. And that's what we're really talking about here in the second Corinthians uh, passage. Uh, th- this this dealing uh, this meeting the needs of poor uh, saints in, in other churches. And as I said, what we see here in, in this example is really the heart of New Testament giving. Second Corinthians 8 really is going to become the pattern of giving uh, in the New Testament for the church. And obviously, Second Corinthians comes again after 1 Corinthians and it was that 1 Corinthians passage that Paul said, first Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16.1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, I, as I directed the church in Galatia, so do I also you, that on the first day of the week, that let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Now in the context, Paul is asking for the Corinthians that they would take up a, a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who are very poor. And the fact is they're, extremely poor, tremendously poor. Uh, they're really an impoverished congregation. And, and let me tell you why that is. Remember in the early church, it was populated by a great number of pilgrims. Uh, people, remember, had come on the day of Pentecost from everywhere uh, during the, the great Jewish celebration, and, and people would come to Pentecost from all uh, over the lands of Israel and further and all over the lands of the Gentile nations, and they'd come to this big festival in Jerusalem. And, and there were also Hellenists, right, uh, Greek uh, Jews who had come to this great festival. Acts chapter 2 verse 1, "...when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven, a noise like a violent rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared on them uh, tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven." And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, and they were uh, each one hearing, uh, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and marvelled, saying, "Are these not all? Uh, why are not all of these speaking uh, uh, who are speaking our Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we are born Parthenians and Medes and Malaites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius in Asia, phygira and Pamphylia and Egypt and districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking the mighty deeds of God. So again, look, there's this great festival, and all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and all these people from all these different areas are hearing. Uh, the the great things that God has done in their own language. Now, some people think these men are drunk, but Peter knows better. Peter says, look, this is exactly what Joel the prophet said was going to happen in the last days that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon mankind. And so he goes to explain about the situation, he goes to explain about the person of Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who worked miracles and wonders and signs, and, and, and the one who was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, whom you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men, right? You put him to death, and, 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 but God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for him uh, to be held in death's power. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord your God shall call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here you go, day one right? Day one, first day of the church, you got 3,000 converts, pilgrims from everywhere. And many of them, again, many, 3,000 of them, they're from faraway places. So as the early church took form, those who had now become Christians find themselves very soon alienated. They're going to be alienated from their families. They're going to find themselves no longer welcome <clears throat> into the Jewish uh, uh, communities in Jewish homes, Jewish uh, synagogues. They're going to be excommunicated. They're not going to have a place to live. They're not going to have a place of employment. And they're going to have to move, right? So they go home and start telling about the Jesus God. They go, we don't want you here. So where are they going to go? They're going to come right back to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the only place that there's a church. Right? This is the only place that there's a church in the entire world. So again, the believers would have come together, they would have fellowship, they would encourage each other, and again, God continues to add to the, to the body of Christ daily, thousands upon thousands uh, converted. In a very short time, uh, many historians would suggest that there may have been as much as 20,000 individuals in uh, the Jerusalem church. So taking care of them is going to be a real issue, and a very real issue very soon. Remember over in uh, Acts chapter 6, right, there's a dispute between the Hellenistic Jews and the Jerusalem Jews who have been converted on how best to care for the widows that they're trying to provide for and trying to provide for their needs. So the early church in Jerusalem is growing exponentially, and it's poor because people have been fired from the jobs, excommunicated, kicked back, and, and so it's a poor. It's a church that is poor from the onset. And again, more and more people are being added to it daily, and so it continues to be poor, and the poverty continues to increase, and the needs increase. Now remember back in Acts chapter 2, when this initial 3,000 come to the Lord, it speaks there on how the early church, it's Acts chapter 2, verse 42, kept continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And then it also says they began selling their property and possessions and sharing as anyone might have need. Then in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 it says the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul and none of them, uh, not one of them claimed anything belonging to him as his own but they were all in common with, they all had things uh, but all things were common property to them uh, and, and there was not a needy member or a needy person among them for all who were owners of land and houses would sell them and bring proceeds of the sales. So just time out for a moment. All these people say, well, you know, Jesus is a communist and he's promoting communism. That, that's completely ridiculous. It's just there's a tremendous need, and people have hearts that are just born out of compassion for others around them, and, and there's just God is saving people and pouring them into the church, the first church, and, and so their needs are being met just by people who are, who are believers around them. Now, again, the Lord continues to, to add to the number, and more and more people are being saved, and again, the resources that they have uh, initially are going to run out, right? You can only sell so much stuff. You only can sell, you know, how much pieces of land, and, and so everything is being depleted, So the Jerusalem church is a very poor church, and they're a persecuted church. Again, they're in a hostile environment. The Orthodox Jewish uh, community would have rejected them. Again, they would have alienated them. They would have excommunicated them. They would have put them out of the synagogue. Again, the synagogue was everything for the Jewish uh, people, and to be thrown out of the synagogue is a major issue. They would have lost their businesses. They would have lost their jobs, uh, their sources of income. Uh, They would have been disowned by their families. So uh, uh, all because they have left Judaism they're following this sect known as the the way and this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen right he foretold all this john 15:20 remember the word that i said to you a slave is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you john 16:2 they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming when everyone who kills you thinks he's offering a service to God. Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left his houses or brothers or, or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name shall receive many times uh, much as, as much and shall inherit uh, eternal life. So, again, uh, the church at Jerusalem is, is poor. Uh, um, they're a persecuted church. And then on top of that, they still live in Rome, right? They live in this Roman culture that is oppressive, that overtaxed everybody. And, and, and so uh, they not only overtaxed everybody, they actually hired Jews, other Jews, to go extort money from their Jewish brethren, and they made their living by extorting what Rome demanded, plus a little bit extra for themselves. So, so the whole thing is a dire situation. So for a number of reasons, you have the early church here in Jerusalem that's absolutely impoverished. They're desperately in need of help. And if that's not enough, it's a very interesting passage in Acts chapter 11, uh, where a guy named Abacus uh, prophesies that there's a worldwide famine coming, and that takes place during the reign of Claudius. Uh, Acts chapter, uh, therefore Acts 11 verse 29 says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each one of them determined to send contribution to the relief of the brethren living in Judea. So the whole thing economically is a mess. And because the Church of Jerusalem, again, is the largest population of believers uh, on the planet, they're already impoverished. And, and again, the famine's going to come, and so everybody sees it's coming, and it's going to be even, uh, there's going to be even more need. The need's going to be even greater. So when Paul begins his third missionary journey, he determines that he's going to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem because they have no resources left. He wants to collect them, this is the important, he wants to collect them from Gentile churches, and take them back to the poor in Jerusalem because he not only wants to demonstrate uh, the care and love for the people there in the church in Jerusalem, but he also wants the world to see, listen, that in Christ there are no racial barriers. In Christ all the racial bitterness have been removed. All the animosity, all, all of the hatred has been eliminated because we're one in Christ. And it's Christ that brings the races together, right? It's Christ that brings both Jew and Gentile back together in one body. So that's why he wants the Gentile churches to bring offerings or a love gift to the Jerusalem church, uh, to the Jewish Christians that are there in in Jerusalem. To express again to the watching world a love poured out. A love poured out, the love that's found in the body of Christ, something the world uh, doesn't know and will never know on its own. So that's kind of real quickly an overview of the background. <clears throat> and that's the, the point of the first reference that I had us look at in 1 Corinthians 16 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church in Galatians, so do I also you, that on the first day of every week each one of you put aside and save, as in me prosper, that no collection will be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may have approved, I shall send uh, them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and this is fitting for me to go also, and they will go with me. Now, what, he, what he's saying uh, again, or what I need to do is I kind of need to qualify the, the, the this is the, the, the first reference of the collection that's written down in the text of Scripture, right? This is the first Corinthians 16, the very first reference written down in Scripture, uh, Paul had been with Corinth before. He, he, he wrote his letter uh, of First Corinthians, according to Acts chapter eighteen, Paul had actually founded the church in, in Corinth on a second missionary journey. There, before before he wrote this inspired letter of First Corinthians, he had written a correspondence to them, according to chapter six, and the letter was lost. It's sometimes known as the lost letter or the lost epistle. Uh, the, the, the copy of that letter had never been found. So, according to First Corinthians seven. Uh, they had written him a letter asking him a number of questions, and likely one of the questions was on the collection uh, that came out of, uh, out of out of their letter. That's why he says in the First Corinthians 16 passage, now concerning the collection, as I directed the church of Galatia. So do I also. So again, the, they've known about there's going to be a collection taken. We don't have that letter, but he's really responding to that, and now he's going to give them specific instructions on how to give. But before the offering can be completely gathered, there's a rift between Paul and the church at Corinth. And that's caused by the false teachers. Now eventually the rift is taken care of. There's reconciliation. And what you have in the 2nd Corinthians passage, 2nd Corinthians 8, is you have the communicate or the, the, the continuation of the collection, the resumption of the collection uh, for the poor and the needy in Jerusalem. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 8, consequently we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning so he would now complete in you this gracious work as well. So again, it's just basically there's a, going to be a resumption of the work, a resumption of the collection that has been going on uh, now for well over a year. Now there's another reference uh, from Paul, or regarding Paul and his uh, collection from the Gentile churches. It's found in Romans 15. You don't have to turn there, but in verse 15, verse 25, it says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Uh, verse 26 says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been uh, pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So again, Paul's collecting money. Uh, he's trying to encourage uh, the continuation and the continuation of our, uh, believers that continue to give money, but on how to, to give money and then to resume the support that they started a year previously in the uh, for the church there in Jerusalem. Now again, this really becomes a pattern for New Testament giving for the church. Because while Paul's speaking to the church at Corinth, he introduces this illustration of the saints at Macedonia. And by using them as an illustration, he's really trying to draw everybody's attention to this kind of giving. This is the kind of giving you should have your mind on, your, 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 your focus on, the kind of giving that the Macedonians did. So again, Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish make to known to you the grace of God which had been given to the churches at Macedonia. So in essence, he's saying, look, the churches at Macedonia really set up for us the model of Christian giving, and, and I think all the way down even to our day. So Paul is intentionally drawing attention to the churches at Macedonia. He says, look, I want to make known to you the giving that was going on in these churches, the churches of Macedonia. They are the standard. They, 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 uh, they are the pattern uh, that is to be set for the New Testament church in this, under this idea of free will giving. Now I got to stop and tell you a little bit about the Macedonians. Uh, the Macedonians were uh, the Church of Macedonia were basically uh, three churches. You had the churches at Philippi, which is uh, uh, the Church of Philippi, where the Book of Philippians was written. You have the Church of uh, Thessali- Thessalonica, uh, which is or, uh, uh, First and Second Thessalonians, and then you have the Church at Berea, right where the Bereans come from. So you have three churches that make up this collection of churches in Macedonia: Philippi, Thessalonica, and then Berea. Now, that region is under control of Rome, and, and, uh, and, and this group of people are very poor also. They're an impoverished people. They had been uh, a Roman province for about 200 years or so, and, and the Romans are, again, an exceedingly cruel people, uh, especially to the Macedonians. And what they did, what the Romans did, is they literally impoverished the Macedonians and uh, 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 the people in this region. And what they did is they took their resources of income from them. They took their sources of wealth, which was uh, gold and silver mining. Uh, the Romans had completely taken over and uh, had made the Macedonians basically their slaves. They made them do all the work, and then they exorbited the Romans did, exorbited a, a great uh, tax from them. Uh, taxing the gold and the silver. On top of that, there was a timber industry, uh, a, shipping, a, a shipping and shipbuilding industry, and the Romans took that over also. So what you have to understand here is when you're going to look at the Second Corinthians 8 passage of the Macedonians, they also are a profoundly poor people, deep in affliction, almost literally slaves to Rome, but they're going to give. They're going to give. They're going to give out of their deep poverty. They're going to give beyond their ability, and they're going to give out of their own free will. Poor by the world standards, but they're generous in their giving. So they're a perfect model to understand the concept of free will giving uh, for the church. Now, on top of that, we should probably uh, keep in mind that these dear believers in Macedonia, they had never met the believers in Jerusalem. All they knew is that there were believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that had a great need. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and for us, look at the Macedonians. This is, this is, these guys are an example how a New Testament saint gives. And, and the first principle uh, that he wants us to understand by way of the Macedonian example is that giving is what Christians do. Giving is what Christians do. Giving is what a devout Christian does because giving is motivated by God's grace. Verse 1 Now brethren, we may wish to make known to you, here it is the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So again, here's a group of people who are uh, believers who are impoverished uh, themselves, who are basically living as slaves in the Roman Empire but they themselves have been touched by God's goodness. They have been a by God's mercy, therefore they want to be involved. They want to help these other brothers and sisters in Jerusalem whom they again have never met. Now you'll notice here that there's no percentage given. In fact, Paul doesn't really draw our attention to their giving as much as he draws our attention to the grace of God that had been given to them and how that great grace had affected their hearts right? We're, we're, we're back to chapter 12 at the top of the chapter in view of the mercies of God, right? So that's what the issue is. It's God's grace and mercy in their hearts. And, and it's affected how they live. It's affected their actions. It's affected their interactions with others. It's affected their desire to give. And they're going to give, these Macedonians, they're going to give sacrificially because their hearts have been changed. Their hearts have been transformed. They have a desire to seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else somewhere down the, down the line. That's their heart's desire. As children of God, they set their affections on things above, not on the things on the earth. As saved saints, they hunger and thirst for righteousness and, and they long for the, the word of God. They desire to walk in obedience. They desire to be led by the person of the Holy Spirit. And they want to give sacrificially. So they're dedicated. Their lives are dedicated completely. They're sold out to the person of Christ. And a generous heart is really seen in the life of somebody who's come under the power of the gospel of grace. A transformed heart, somebody that's come under the power of the the gospel has a generous heart because God has given so much to them. Because God has given so much to the believer, the one who has been saved by uh, God's grace, genuinely saved, they want to identify themselves with him. They want to be like him. They want to act like him. They want to be gracious. They want to be compassionate. They want to be generous, just like their God is towards them. They want to bless the helpless, just like God has blessed them. And you know that principle. It's in First uh, John three uh, sixteen. You don't have to look there. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's, this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So little children, let us not love in word or with the tongue, but in deed and truth. So a true, true believer wants to be like their God. Uh, and, and their God has given to them much, and, and now they're motivated by that mercy and that grace of God in their own life, and they want to give away much. So it's all of God's grace and God's grace uh, a, a giving uh, or grace giving is a hallmark of somebody who's been touched by God's grace. And, and, and grace giving, just the desire to be like God, giving freely and richly is really the basis of this free will giving idea. Not grudgingly, not out of compulsion, not out of duty, duty. But motivated by the mercy and grace of God in your own life, you give joyously. Uh, again, back to the Lord and back to his people uh, out of um, God's mercy and grace in your own life. Now listen, if you ever give out of duty, if you ever feel like you quote-unquote have to give, and you really don't want to give. So if, you, if you're feeling some kind of external pressure, I've got to give, I don't want to give, honestly and most graciously, just put your money back in your pocket. God doesn't need your money or my money. Money's not the issue. What did I say a while back? Money is a barometer of our hearts. Money is a barometer of where we are spiritually. It all belongs to God anyway, right? So we don't give out a duty or, or, or compulsion. We give back to God out of a heart that's been moved by His grace. Now, if God has again moved in your heart and uh, uh, you, uh, grace is uh, working in your life, you give to His work. Any work that ha- actually exalts the persons of God in Christ so that they're, uh, they're lifted up, honored, glorified, more men can uh, hear uh, the gospel, etc., and so forth. Now, there's a the second thing here in their giving. It's motivated by grace. The, the giving of the Macedonians is motivated by grace, but it's motivated irrespective of their circumstances. It, it, it's, it's irrespective of their circumstances because godly giving transcends circumstances. Uh, Look at verse 2. I'm going to read verse 1, but verse 2 is where I'm headed for. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, verse 2, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In a great deal of affliction, so they're giving during circumstances that are difficult, right? A great deal, of ordeal of affliction, the word great, pulos, a much, many, large, ordeal. That means a uh, 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 trial, a uh, uh, tried. It was the word that's actually used to put metal to the test in a furnace. So it's used here as a test or a trial by fire. Great, ordeal, and then affliction. The word slipsis it just means pressure. Uh, There's this great pressure. There's this, uh, metaphorically, it's used for oppression, tribulation, distress, uh, crushing mental, physical, spiritual... Persecution. First Thessalonians chapter two refers to that kind of of, of uh, pressure, that kind of suffering. Uh, First Thessalonians two verse fourteen: "You brethren became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same suffering at the hand of your own countrymen, even uh, as they did uh, from the Jews, and both who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and, and they are uh, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men." First Thessalonians. One six, you became imitators of us and, and uh, of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Second uh, Thessalonians one four. Therefore, we ourselves uh, uh, speak proudly uh, of you among the churches of God for your preservation and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and affliction which you endure. The Philippians, same thing. You have been to you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe but to suffer. Right? So so the Macedonians were going through a time of testing, suffering, trial, a great deal of, of ordeal of affliction but irrespective of their circumstances they still gave. They still gave. That was their heart. Again, in the churches of Macedonia there's no poor me kind of attitude. Uh, again, they're, they're living above their circumstances. They're living above the, the persecution and the affliction that they're enduring. Uh, the severe hardship which they are under Uh, going really doesn't have an effect on their giving. They're giving in the midst of their suffering. Why? Because their hearts are still moved by God's grace, by God's mercy compassion in their own life. They're still viewing all of life in view of the mercies of God's grace to them. So not only did they continue to give, but look at the qualifying statement here uh, that describes their giving, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So again, you got these people that are going, uh, undergoing a great time of suffering, affliction. Did they give out of duty? Did they give because they are commanded to? Did they give because they are forced to give? The answer is no. Uh, they, they gave because they wanted to. In a great time of affliction, they gave out of the abundance of joy. They wanted to give. They wanted to be a part of helping these other brothers. And that's exactly what Paul said, you don't have to turn there, but over in 2 Corinthians 9-7 when he said, let each one of you give just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Cheerful giver. So that's who these guys were, that's who the Macedonians, deeply devoted to God, deeply devoted to Christ, moved by the mercies of God in their own life. And they were in love with God's people, they were in love with the church. They loved their brothers and sisters in Christ whom they never met in person. And the joy in the Lord that they had allowed them to live above their circumstances. And that's really the way it has to be for us. We can't lose our joy. We can't let circumstances dictate personal happiness. Because we're commanded to look where? Look up, right? To fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to keep looking up and realizing that God is sovereign. The throne of heaven is occupied. God's in charge of it. He's the sovereign. And I think we need to continue to encourage each other with that fact, with that reality. As Christians, we can't let circumstances dictate our personal happiness. We need to encourage each other, encourage ourselves. We need to speak truth to ourselves, not listen to ourselves. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who know him and are called according to his purpose, right? We need to encourage each other and remind each other that. We need to encourage and remind each other that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God found in the person of Jesus Christ, nothing. No matter what may come our direction, personally, nationally, internationally. And again, don't give away your joy, ever, in the midst of circumstances, Far too often we let circumstances dictate our, our, our demeanor, and, and we shouldn't do that. Don't ever give away the joy you have in Christ to the circumstances around you, however difficult they may be. Again, in the midst of a great ordeal of affliction, the Macedonians continued to give. They continue to be uh, 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 giving people irrespective of the circumstances they found themselves in. And again, that's New Testament giving. Their giving wasn't hindered by their poverty. And again, remember, they were virtually slaves. They were persecuted. They endured high taxes. They had very little themselves. They were impoverished. And yet, out of the depths of their poverty, they still gave. And They gave with liberality. And a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They're a very generous people. Verse 3 says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they give of their own accord. Well, how in the world could they do that? How could they give out of their deep poverty? How could they give out of how could they be generous and give beyond their ability? Again, the answer is they didn't have them, their focus on themselves, or they didn't have their focus on their circumstances. They had their eyes looking up. They're looking on Christ, the person of Christ, what God had done for them through Christ. They believed what God said in Philippians 4:19, "My God shall supply your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus." They believed that. They believed that God cared for them. They believed that God loved them. They didn't count on their money to save them. <clears throat> they didn't trust in their visa or their mastercard because they didn't have a visa or a mastercard. They just entrusted themselves to God. In all of their needs, they entrusted them to the true and the living God who loved them enough to send his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die in their place as their substitute in order to reconcile their relationship to the Holy God. They didn't trust their circumstances, they didn't trust themselves, they entrusted themselves to the living God to deal with them again out of a heart of mercy and grace and compassion as he has done. So, again, it was out of a joyous heart with a great. Uh, uh, amount of uh, overflowing wealth and their liberality they gave beyond their ability to meet the needs of other people because giving really is a matter of what you have it's really a matter of the heart because money is all about a matter of the heart so the person that says well I'm gonna wait till I have more to give doesn't understand grace giving. G- giving again is not an issue of the heart it, it, it's, again, these guys, uh, the great ordeal of affliction and the abundance of joy and the deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of liberality. Uh, again, they may not have had, had a lot of money, but they had a heart that loved God and loved Christ and loved God's people. And by worldly standards, they were poor, but by spiritual standards, they weren't poor at all. They, They had their eyes on the promises of God. They had their eyes focused on the person of Jesus Christ. They were rich in their heart attitudes, rich in trusting God, rich in standing in grace and mercy and seeing all of life and everything around them through that lens of God's mercy in their own life. And they weren't trusting themselves. They were trusting God, the one who sent his son into the world to save them, to meet their needs. And they gave generously. They gave with liberality. Uh, they gave with a single-minded folkness. Again, not upon themselves, but upon others. Because that's what Christians do. Right? The world says, take care of number one. Right? Take care of number one. That's what the world says. But people who have been touched by God's grace are like their Savior. And of the Savior, Philippians 2, 3 says, he never did anything. Right? Or, we are commanded to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another more important than themselves, not really looking out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. That's how Christ lived. That's how we're called to live as Christ followers. So again, that's the Macedonian believers. They're motivated by grace in the midst of a great deal of affliction. uh, And in the midst of a great deal of affliction, they're still maintaining a joyous heart. They're trusting God, trusting Christ to supply all their needs. And they're giving. They're giving away generously, liberally uh, what they have. They're giving beyond their ability because they want to reach out to other brothers and sisters in Christ and and be a blessing to them just as God has been a blessing in their own life. Right? So free will giving is always motivated by that heart transformational change of God's grace and mercy. Giving back to God not because you have to but giving back uh, to God because you want to uh, out of love. Now there's more than we could say and we're going to say but we're not going to do that tonight. But that, that's the model. So that's kind of the introduction just to set it up so I can kind of work through that Second Corinthians 8 passage because it's just a tremendous uh, uh, passage and a standard that helps us understand uh, what God uh, is asking uh, of us. Uh, if we can trust Him to save us, we certainly can trust Him to take care of our needs in time. And again, what we do with our money is really a demonstration of where our heart is and what we think is most important, and you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the choir. I man, you guys are very generous in this congregation, and uh, again, uh, the the monies that you've spent to support the ministry, and the monies that you've spent in any time we have an outreach like the Emmanuel's Child Project, uh, it just shows where your hearts are, and, and again. Uh, my, <laughs> You've already given, but I just think it's such a tremendous ministry, the Emmanuel's Child Project. It just makes a, a tremendous impact in people's lives, more than you can imagine. Okay? Um, I've been there. Bob's been there. Uh, a couple other people in the room, I think. Uh, Tim's been with me, and uh, you were there with us, right, when we did that, uh, Angie? Uh, it, it's just a tremendous ministry. It really, really makes it a great impact. But, but Because that's what we do, right? Everything's viewed, right? So how do you get on this tangent? Well, because I'm a tangent runner. I get it, Right? But it really comes under the twelve chapter 12 heading. Everything we do, it's really a hard attitude to those around us, to the person of God, to those around us in the church, outside the church, even the issue of authority, pay your taxes Well, it's my money. And I don't like to... okay, but what what's the hard issue? I, I just want to use what God gives so that we can be a blessing to others around us and trust God to take care of our needs. I mean, he's taking care of our needs pretty well here. I believe, in our our life and in this fellowship. Okay, that's enough. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time and your word this evening. And thank you for this um, look, again, at paying taxes, tithing, and the idea of free will uh, giving. And we're just so thankful uh, because of your mercies in our life. So we're to present our bodies back to you in total. And that's reasonable. We don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want to prove your will, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, and help us to do that. Thank you for our day of worship, for the morning and the evening, and our study of your word. Thanks for these dear folks, Lord, that um, you have assembled here in Cornerstone, and just the love they have for each other, the love that they have for you. Thank you for uh, allowing us to meet and to honor you, and pray your blessing on uh, the rest of our evening, in Christ's name, amen.